Hey, podcast theologians, Pastor Wolfmuller here. Here's the audio from the Worldwide Bible Class this week. It was Genesis chapter, we're doing the life of Jacob with Luther. Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, where Esau is enraged. Luther tells the story again with dramatic effect, talking about how Esau was this king who went on this great hunting party, and they were all there ready to watch him receive the blessing when they find out that Jacob had it, and then they all spur him on to the murder of his brother. Uh, it's it's marvelous thinking, and especially as Luther digs into the dynamics of the conscience and what's going on there, he talks about the furies and the conscience, and we track down that language in Luther. So this is me mostly just reading Luther's Genesis commentary and talking about it. Uh, if you can join us live for the Worldwide Bible Study, that's a lot of fun. You can see it on screen and interact and everything like that, but uh, hopefully this podcast is also helpful. If it is, let me know. If it's not, let me know. Wolfmuller.co slash contact is the best way to get a hold of me. I hope you enjoy it. God's peace be with you. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word we might embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Uh, in order to fix my pin, by the way, so welcome uh, to, for those just watching the recording, but you're here live. That's just great. Uh, we're studying the life of Luther with Jacob. Uh, and we are, uh, we're in Genesis 27, verse 41. Oh, this is some really good stuff. This is the anger of Esau, the false repentance of, uh, the false repentance of Esau, where Luther's going to be contrasting true repentance with false repentance. And especially this business of parents and children. I'm going to, I, I, I should tell you that I was just before class trying to disable my Windows Ink workspace so that I'll be able to write more smoothly on this. And it had me doing some things to the computer that uh, I don't know if they were legal or not. I mean, I was in the back end of the stuff where only the computer mechanics are supposed to be. So Lord willing, I didn't destroy it and it won't crash in the middle, but we'll see how it goes. So just a warning. Okay. So, um, Susan mentions that she tried to join us from Santorini. I cannot believe you did not take time from Santorini. Okay, so Luther, just to pick up on the theme here, Luther is talking about the dangers of youth and 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 this idea, and, and why here. So here's the verse. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Remember, I always thought that that meant Esau, Isaac is going to die soon, and then we'll mourn, and then I'm going to kill Jacob. I used to think that's the, the order of things. But Luther understands this, and the more I've been into Luther on this, I think Luther is right. He says that Esau is saying, no, I'm going to murder my brother, and then my father is going to mourn. And uh, Luther takes this occasion to talk about the access that children have to their own parents' hearts because, because parents love their children so much. It says that 
father and mother are endowed with that very tender affection and love toward their offspring, which is not so intense and ardent in children. Parents love their kids more than kids love their parents. That's that's the idea here. And you don't you don't understand that, I don't think, until you're a parent. But that deep affection. And so the Lord is protecting, the Lord is protecting parents with the commandment, honor your father and your mother. Therefore, let the youth beware to learn and honor and respect their parents, to regard the words father and mother as the most sacred objects of veneration. Indeed, let them hold that they should rather die than offend their parents. So this obligation that the Lord puts on children to honor father and mother is not an accidental sort of thing. Uh, what did I see the other day? Oh, yeah, this was kind of funny. This, is a, this was a joke, but Carrie showed me a meme, and it said, nothing prepares you for this. And it had a baby saying, mama, and then a little boy saying, mom. And then an older boy, maybe a 10-year-old saying, mother. And then a teenager saying, bruh. <laughs> That's how it is around here. And kids don't, oh, it's kind of funny. But the kids just don't realize how much that their own decisions, their own lives affects their parents. Uh, I want to read actually kind of fast today and cover some territory. But So let's, let's go. Uh, for in this life, uh, they have nothing by which they are influenced more than by the love and affection of their children. Parents know that. For this reason, they're very easily hurt, even if you are not aware of it, but are engulfed in sin and in the flesh and attach little importance to their concern and solicitude for you. Uh, it, it, I think it is the, the greatest difficulty in life, the greatest difficulty in a church. It, the thing that causes the most suffering is children who have left the faith for sin. And they think only of themselves and have no idea how much that demolishes their parents. Uh, so that the children, Luther says, have little importance on how much this affects their parents but woe to you if you respect and if your respect and reverence are not appropriate for in this way you'll suddenly become the murderer of your father and the murderer of your mother before you even think of it and then you will look in vain for their blessing indeed you'll more likely bring upon yourself the gallows of the sword and a horrible a horrible curse for this is what the word of god says deuteronomy 26 27 cursed be he who dishonors his father and mother Exodus 21, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Leviticus 20, he who curses his father or his mother, his blood shall be upon him. It's amazing to me how Luther just knew these verses. You know, he didn't have Logos Bible software to look it up. Here Esau actually curses his father, if not in words, nevertheless in fact. For this is what he means when he says the days of mourning for my father are approaching. The usual translation is the days will come, but the Hebrew word means that they are near. That is, it'll not be long until I shall disturb the joy of my father, my mother, also my brother Jacob. Just as they have disturbed my own joys, I shall compound gall and wormwood for them, as the common saying is. These are certainly words of an exceedingly horrible curse, which proves that he is being driven by the devil and the furies 
Now, I, I thought this was very interesting, by the way, this idea of the Furies being driven by the devil and the Furies. So I did a, I did a search on to see when the Furies came up in Luther, and I found some very interesting things. What's going on there? Um, uh, that Luther mentions the Furies a handful of times, uh, but here's, here's a couple of them. Uh, it's the, the the furies come up in luther's idea it, it's it can't it's this you know the ancient greek idea of these sort of demigods that in enrage you and drive you to act um in all sorts of wicked ways for no reason and and luther sees this as a sign of a bad conscience um is this the one i want to look at first Maybe this is the one. This is uh, this. That's where we are. Yeah, here. So, so here we are. This is still Luther's Genesis commentary. Um, this is talking about oh Genesis forty three. So we're so we're still in the Jacob story. Why do they not take hold of the word which can buoy them up and strengthen them so that they can be without fear of death and dangers? So great is their bewilderment that they are unable to recall the promise and the sermons of their father, which had, they had long since neglected. This has got to be the 12 tribes. Because they despise the word, let them have the lie, be afraid of themselves. See that? So, so the question is, can you tell what you're afraid of? You're afraid of yourself. You imagine tyranny and punishment of every kind for themselves. These are the well-known furies. The torture of a disturbed conscience because of the sin which has been committed. The tortures with which it burdens and afflicts them in vain and without any cause. This is a, a, now, so this is the, the Furies is a way of talking about the person who's driven mad by their own conscience. By their own wicked, bad conscience. Thus, the following statement of a certain cardinal is widely quoted. Conscience is an evil beast which makes a man take a stand against himself. The Italians have a common saying, it's necessary to kill one's conscience and to say that it's nothing. But how long will this evil be lulled to sleep until the law comes? When it accuses and terrifies, I'm killed. I persecute, attack. I torture myself with vain thoughts that amount to nothing. Thus, over and above. Uh, over let's see over and above the fact that we sin gravely against god we also afflict ourselves we take a stand against ourselves and fight until a brother comes up to console and buoy us up with the word and say why are you insane why are you imagining things in your dreams you are mistaken god is not angry with you he's taken away your sin for a heart that tortures itself needs such a remedy and the comfort of a brother now we all so we all know something that this idea of the fear. So if I have a bad conscience, then the, the whole world becomes evil to me. Uh, John says it like this to the, to the impure, to the unclean, all things are unclean. And if I have a bad conscience, then, you know, I'm driving to work and I get three red lights in a row and I think, oh, God is punishing me. The whole world seems like it's it's creeping up on me. And this is so this is the fury. That's when the that's when that accusing 
uh, activity of the conscience makes us crazy. There's another, uh, a couple Luther passages to look at. Here's another one. Um, let me see. Is this what I want to do? This is, uh, yeah. It also occurs to me that when Laban was somehow alarmed after the manner of the wicked, who have an evil conscience, Uh, and have a way of becoming terrified and alarmed at the sound of a leaf. Leviticus 26, 36. It says, uh, those who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. And they shall flee as one flees from the sword when they shall fall when no one pursues. So you hear the sound of the rustling of the leaf. And you say, ah, um, you're jumpy. The world is out to get you. The wicked flee, Solomon says in Proverbs 28, the wicked flee when no one pursues. The poets tell the story of Orestes when he was driven by the Furies. Apparently from the footnote, Luther was thinking of something different. Eumenides uh, of Aeschylus. And there's an excellent description in Juvenal of those who toil under the torment of the conscience. He says, still, why should you think that they have escaped punishment whom their hearts, conscious of a foul deed, keep terror struck? These are the ones who are alarmed, who grow pale at every flash of lightning. This is the punishment which is joined to sin. Now, you, you know, this flash of lightning, this is Luther himself. Because, I mean, this is the, the, his whole story when he was almost struck by lightning. He vowed to St. Anne that he would become a monk. That's a bad conscience. A bad conscience thinks that the whole world is out to get you. Pastor Gernander says, sometimes the brother who console, consoles and buoys you up is, uh, who says you're mistaken, God's not angry with you, is your spouse. Amen to that. God be praised for godly spouses who know the gospel um here, here's a here's another uh one uh luther on this same thing happens today to murderers after they've committed murder they are so fiercely pursued by the furies that they are indeed dumbfounded and think that heaven and earth have taken on another appearance they do not know where to flee uh the poets describe orestes such an awful thing is the outcry of the blood of an evil uh, of the blood of an evil conscience. The same thing happens in the case of other uh, heinous sins. Those whom sadness of spirit seizes experience similar sensations. For them, all creatures appear changed. I wonder what this is. Uh... That's an interesting footnote. Even when they speak with people whom they know and turn hear them, the very sound of their speech seems different. Their looks appear changed. Everything becomes black and horrible wherever they turn their eyes. Such a fierce and savage beast is an evil conscience. So unless God comforts them, they must end their own life because of their despair, their distress, their inability to bear their own grief. You see, so here we're talking about this. Yeah, Lee says the telltale heart. This idea, uh, and and we, um, or remember, uh, it, is it Macbeth? Out, out, damn spot when the uh, queen is um, sleepwalking and and trying to get wash the blood off of her hands. This is so much, or um, a crime and punishment. Dostoevsky isn't. This is the that's uh, 
an exploration of this very theme that a, a conscience, a bad conscience is, uh, uh, it, it changes the way the whole world is to us. Which means also on the, on the flip side that a good conscience, um, that a good conscience is the opposite. Where's there's one more. Uh, here, I don't know if we need more from Luther here. Uh, uh, Orestes, he brings the tragedies of poets have invented the character Noah's. Oh, yeah, this I wanted to see. Uh, in the tragedies, the poets have invented the characters known as Irenes or Furies. They all speak of the misfortune and heartache called minds sibi malaconsia, uh, the, the heart of con consciousness of its guilt. The Holy Scriptures say briefly, there's no peace for the wicked, Isaiah 48. Nothing is more implacable and restless than a fearful heart. It turns pale at every thunderbolt, even at the rustling of a leaf. So the sons of Jacob have an evil conscience. This is talking about the when they go to Egypt and, and Joseph, remember, is messing around with them. And all they can remember is their crime against Joseph. The revenge of conscience is how Jay Budashevsky has written about this in his books. Hmm. Amazing. Now, if this is true, how much do we rejoice in the scriptural gift that for the pure, all things are pure? For the, uh, for the holy, all things are holy. So that the Lord gives us a good conscience so that we don't look around and say, uh, you know, that it, it, is, it does not seem to us like the world is out to get us. A good conscience, it makes the sun shine brighter. It makes the grass look greener. It makes your food taste better. It helps you to sleep at night. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not a good conscience to the, the fact. And, and so, and this is how I try, try to bring this to myself because we get so distressed from our own sin and from all the trouble around us. And, and so that I try to uh, preach this to myself. Isaiah 12, God is not mad at you. God is not angry with you. He's not ashamed of you. God is not. The whole world might be mad at you, but God is not mad at you. And that's the difference. If God is for us, who can be against us? What price would you pay for a good conscience? And here the Lord gives it to us free. And every Sunday in the Lord's Supper, ah, here's a good conscience. God be praised. Okay. Uh, so Luther talking about, whoops, I didn't share. So Luther talking about this, uh, the Furies, as he's talking about how um, we see how Esau now is being driven by the Furies. He's, he's being driven crazy by, um, by his own sin and his lack of repentance. Matt says, I've always wondered why confession and absolution are so vital to the life of the Christian. If God has forgiven me already, this sheds very light on the question. Exactly. It's that cleansing of the conscience. You know, I remember one time, 
the con we have the three pictures of the conscience, right? The conscience is like a window. The conscience is like an umpire. The conscience is like a courtroom. But this this is the window of the conscience that we're talking about here. And I wonder if I can draw it. I'll try. So if you can imagine, you have a a window here. Here's a window. Okay. And uh, let's make it a dirty window. So uh, so it's got spots on it. Okay. And the result is that everything outside the window, say there's a tree out there and there's a bird flying around in the sky out in the window and that, but you're looking through, um, you're looking through a dirty window. And so everything seems to you outside, everything looks dirty. Everything looks unclean, right? And not only that, but everything inside also looks unclean. All the stuff in here, you know, the, the spots from the, uh, uh, from the window are reflected on the walls and the floors. I remember one time, I remember one time I was, uh, <laughs> I was vacuuming and there's a spot on the floor and I was vacuuming over it, vacuum, vacuum, and it wouldn't vacuum up, vacuum, vacuum. So I got down and on my knees to try to see what was it was. And it was a shadow of something on the window. <laughs> and I was trying to vacuum up the shadow. See? So if you have a dirty window, everything outside is unclean. Ah, I didn't apparently fix this. Unclean. And everything on the inside is unclean. That's the result of a dirty conscience. The whole world looks like it's after you and your own heart is all is chasing after you. Okay. But if on the other hand, you have a clean window, it doesn't make everything look clean. It makes everything look clear. You can see things as they really are. So a clean conscience gives you clarity of sight. The old, the, uh, the, uh, the old theologians used to talk about how uh, it was necessary to, for theology to have a clean conscience. Because if you see something sinful, you say, ah, sinful. If you see something righteous or holy, ah, holy, righteous. And you can see that in yourself, and you can see it outside yourself. So a clean conscience lets you see your own sin according to God's law on the inside, and a clean conscience lets you see the cross of Jesus on the outside. In fact, it's his blood that, that cleans our conscience. Got it? Now, someone says, the story flips later. Janet says, but uh, Esau doesn't kill Jacob back gladly. Jacob comes back to Esau with guilty conscience and fear and tricks and plays his brother. That's right. So we'll get to that in three or four years. Because we're going to go backwards now. Look at this. Luther's going to... But, um, but we still got a little bit more on father and mother. So uh, Luther's not quite done. Luther himself is wordy. And you know how I'm amplifying. You know the word for amplify in sign language. Oh. So Luther amplifies, and then I 
the midrash on the on the Talmud on the Torah. All right, so according, uh, let's just skip to here the highlight. Therefore, it is not without purpose that God uses the word honor in the fourth commandment. For he does not say, obey your parents, listen to your parents. No, he says, honor them. Set them apart as holy in your heart. Honor. Serve, honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. Honor is above love, Luther tells us in the large catechism. Honor is this great thing to do. Honor is connected to God. He wants this name, father, mother, to be regarded as sacrosanct. That means holy, set apart. For God knows the wickedness of original sin, which is so powerful that it impels people to kill their parents and rage against their own blood. David was severely plagued by this evil, and he learned what great grief and what great distress the wickedness of children causes, especially with Absalom. He felt his son, oh yeah, for he felt that his son Absalom was his enemy who was plotting against his physical and eternal welfare and life, but eventually incurred a horrible curse when he met the destruction befitting his deeds. Therefore, I urge and earnestly beseech all young men to shun and detest this sin. Now, why does he say young men and not young women? Is it because the young women aren't troubled by this sin? It's probably because Luther's lecturing in the seminary. And so he's going to have a class full of young men. So young people here, to shun and detest this sin and to accustom their hearts to respect their parents and to that end, implore God's help with unceasing prayers. If this happens in the house of Adam, remember Cain killed Abel, in the house of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, and in the house of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, I'm now passing over very many examples of the heathen, what shall we parents not look for, and what will you children not be afraid of? You see that the devil is in our midst. You also see exceedingly sad examples of punishments in all ages, examples which befall insolent children who disgrace their parents and torment them with their insolence how wretched and sudden esau's downfall is before he foresees or thinks of such a sad event and how would he think of it since his father's house he alone is in control of civil affairs and rules the church inasmuch as he is lord and prince of the house and now we're going to get uh in a way luther's going to back up and sort of reset i wonder if this is a new lecture or he took a break because he's going to kind of reset the picture for us which is really great for this is the picture of the house and the household of isaac the aged father is rid of all the duties of the head of the household and the entire administration now let me just warn you here this is this is luther's careful reconstruction of events he's taking his clue from the scriptures but he's he's building up something more than the scriptures and and this is where this is a good challenge to us, because at least to me, because his Luther's reshaping of the backstory of all of this is just different than I'm used to hearing in, in Sunday school, probably even used to teaching. Um, so the assumption here is that Esau has taken over all of the rule of the household. Uh, Esau, remember, has two wives. Esau and Jacob, well, remember also they're the same age. The age here now is that they're 77 years old, that Isaac is old and blind, so that Esau is ruling. 77 is not spring chicken. Uh, so that he's so that Esau and his two wives and his children and maybe his grandchildren are ruling 
Isaac and Jay and and Rebecca have sort of been pushed out of that rule. Remember that that Esau's two wives were a bane to Rebecca, the two Hittite wives that he took, and so there's conflict there. Remember also that that uh, Isaac and Rebecca are the strangers, so that so that the Hittite wives were the locals. And that their families must have been very important. So Esau has all these political collect connections with the local people. So the idea is that Esau is well established as the guy in charge. And Isaac is kind of in the background. Um, so let me let me just actually read through this sort of fast and 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 see if we can roll through it um, a little bit. This is a picture of the household and of Isaac. The aged father is rid of all the duties of the head of household. And the entire administration, whether in the household or in civil or church affairs, for he's blind, not as I think because of old age, but because of some other mishap or trial, so that this too was added to the mass of his afflictions and his cross. For he was a saintly man, and God loved him. Therefore, he was vexed by many trials. I do not know why Luther doesn't think that it's age that, that blinded Isaac, but some other accident. I don't know. Consequently, deprived as he is of the use of his eyes, he's compelled to abstain from all governing unless perhaps some verbal admonition or command has to be given. Rebecca is the mother of the household, but without authority. Similarly, Jacob, too, was scorned and despised. Esau alone, who had his two wives and many children, is Lord. For Jacob is not blessed until 37 years have elapsed after Esau's marriage, which he has celebrated when he was 40 years old. Now both are 77 years of age. In the meantime, however, Esau begat many children. So at this point, Jacob is still single, 77 and single. Esau has this big family, all the local connections, all the power, all the rule, all the strength. Consequently, even if Rebecca, the mother of the household, assumed part of the management, yet she did this with the greatest difficulty, very great annoyances for her two daughters-in-law were heathen and godless ladies of the house who despised their mother-in-law as a silly old woman woman besides it is usual that all daughters-in-law find it annoying to be ruled by their mothers-in-law <laughs> luther knew that but these women were not foreigners they were natives in this land who had married esau a poor and abject foreigner therefore they opposed rebecca proudly with the height of contempt this poor rebecca lived in a in great anxiety and the utmost contempt as has been stated above genesis 26 they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. They were both morach, a bitterness for the two parents. They continually harassed and tormented, tormented the very pious woman, for they were the queens in the house. Esau was a yunker, a knight, uh, a ruler. Remember when Luther was in the Wartburg, he wore a sword and called himself Yunker George, Knight George. <laughs> which I think he probably liked. In fact, I think that just reminds me, you know how there's a, you can see a Cronach painting of Junker George. So that's Luther with his beard and everything. And Cronach was in Wittenberg and Luther was in the Wartburg, which is, I don't know, a hundred miles away or 70 miles away or something. And Luther's busy translating the Bible. And I wondered one day, how did Cronach get a picture of luther to paint it's not like luther can take a selfie and send it to him and say hey paint this up 
either Cronach would have had to gone to Wartburg or more likely Luther went back secretly to Wittenberg and said, Hey, Cronach, uh, paint a picture of me with this awesome beard. And it's, and I think that that's when Luther found out what was going on, uh, in Wittenberg with all of the radical reformation. And so he goes back to the Wartburg, writes a letter to the prince and says, Hey, I got to get back there. And then he shaves his beard, comes back, preaches the Invocavit sermons, etc. I think that's all precipitated by the fact that Luther wants to get a painting of him with his beard. <laughs> that's my, I've never, I, I haven't heard Reformation historians talk about that. That's my own guess. I'll show you pictures of Junker George in a little bit. I wasn't, that's a Junker. He's a Junker. Esau was a Junker, uh, a knight who is related by affinity to the nobles and important persons of the land. Jacob was an exile shortly to be cast out, for Esau was planning to appoint his own children and his heirs, and undoubtedly his relatives by marriage and his two wives urged him to do this. Hence, he's completely sure of his rule and priesthood, for he governs the house in his father's place as his father's deputy. But Rebecca, his very saintly mother, walks in the mire of many waters and suffers many indignities from her daughters-in-laws for the father, who is an old man and has been deprived of his sight and has given up all management. Uh, how much Rebecca suffered in the meantime, how many wrongs and affronts she had to bear without speaking about them. Hence, it is not without a reason that she favors and protects Jacob in order that he may obtain the blessing, while Esau gives orders so proudly in the house and his relatives by marriage exult with such great arrogance and boast that through this prince Esau, even the Hittites themselves wanted to rule. Then Rebecca undoubtedly poured out anxious and fervent prayers be tearfully before God when she saw that the glow of the promise was be to be transferred to the heathen, namely to the Hittites. Oh, God, she cried, prevent their accept attempt from succeeding. Accordingly, when the community and Esau, the very haughty prince, were flourishing in this way, while Jacob, together with his mother, was despised and thrust aside, Esau had no other persuasion than that he was a king by every divine and, and human right. To this are added the devotion, the favor, and the benefits of his father Isaac, which is a confirmation and completely sure evidence. Relying on this, he no longer at all concer uh, concerned about having sold and repudiated his birthright. He's smug about everything, as though he had been placed in heaven itself and in paradise. So Esau has everything going for him. He's got the big family. He's got the rule. He's got the, you know, the, the only pro the, way back. There's that, you know, birthright issue. And way, way back, there's that promise that the older will serve the younger. But none of those things are in his mind. He's ensconched in his rule. Observe, however, Pastor Gernander says they brought Luther secretly to Cronach and he didn't recognize him until they told him. I didn't know that that, that we had that recorded. I was just putting the pieces together. That's cool. Observe, however, back to text here. Observe, however, how suddenly and unexpectedly the wrath and judgment of God overwhelm him. Blam! It turns in a day. His father commands him to go out hunting and to bring him choice food since he was to be blessed. On that occasion, now watch, this is an amazing thing. I had not thought of this. But Luther sees this hunting trip of Esau as like a... Uh, it's like the kings of England would go out hunting on their deer for fox. He gathers everyone together for this hunting trip. And they have this big party. 
and 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 Esau calls his wife, his wives, and his children and his grandchildren together, and they say, "I'm I'm going to finally receive the blessing," and they have this big party, and this big and they get in their fancy clothes and they get out their fancy hunting stuff. On that occasion, Esau undoubtedly had relatives by marriage and other friends as companions. And so he goes out with dogs and the rest of the crowd of hunters who congratulated him and the household of Esau. It's like a, a ceremonial hunt kind of thing because now the king is going to be crowned. The prince is going to become the king. It's an amazing picture, actually. I, I, I'm very, I really, I, you know, I always thought Esau goes out like, with his bow and arrow out into the woods. But here's a 77-year-old king. How would he go hunting? So he goes out with dogs and the rest of the crowd of hunters who congratulated him and the household boasted, tomorrow Isaac will bless Esau, our prince and priest. Everything was full of joy and exultation. So that there, this is this celebratory blessing. But then what happens? Esau returns home with pomp and grand expectation. He offers his father the food he had prepared. Then all things, all hope, and all joys suddenly collapse. And he himself is dashed to the ground as though struck by a thunderbolt from heaven. Therefore, he has abundant reason to be angry to think that such great joy and pomp are so suddenly changed, what fearful and great maledictions he then hurled at his brother, what weeping there was, what confusion, wailing, and dismay of the whole household, of the wives and the relatives by marriage. For he who had been a lord, a king, and a priest at six o'clock in the morning has become a servant by evening. Thus, contrary to all hope and expectation, they are suddenly deprived of their great hope. The flesh cannot be patient in a misfortune of this kind, Esau thought. What shall I do now? The shame is too great for me to be able to bear and endure to such an extent have I, a king and a priest, been affronted in my father's house, and my brother, who up to this time has been cast aside completely, will now be lord over me? And he added curses and maledictions. Ah, let the devil and hell lay on, let hellfire lay on. That unexpected downthrow from such great hope could not fail to disturb him most violently. Accordingly, you see, what a great and horrible evil it is to sin smugly and not repent. This is the this is that the birthright, the sold birthright coming back to haunt him, which he had totally forgotten about in his you hear the word is smugness. This caused this misfortune of Esau, because of God's wrath, was deprived of every heavenly blessing just as Lucifer fell from heaven before he foresaw or even thought of it. When he lost the blessing, as it was, as it then was, he at the time also lost his father and mother and the entire inheritance together with the kingship and the priesthood. Therefore, he is insanely angry and enraged. And he says, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. This is how he spoke to his relatives by marriage with whom he took counsel into the household which saw that he was burning with wrath and rage. So you get the idea. So that they are all celebrating this great hunt and Esau goes in to see Isaac and to, he's got the robes on and he's going to be ordained as king and uh, ordained as priest and consecrated as king, uh, coronated as king. And he comes out and instead of, instead of wearing the garments, his robes are torn 
and his face is angry and his wives and his children say, what happened in there? And he says, Jacob stole the birthright. And then uh, his children wept and shed tears. They saw that he's deprived of and disappointed in their proudest hope. And they spurred him on to rage. You can't let him have it. Because it's not just, it's not just Esau. It's Esau's wives. It's Esau's children. It's Esau's grandchildren. It's all of this hope that all of the whole thing. Here's Jacob by himself. Single guy. He's got nothing. And, and, and it's him, Jacob, the guy who just sat around reading the books. They spurred him on to rage. You're not going to let so many good things be taken away from you and us, Read So suddenly are you. I will not permit it, he said. I will play havoc with that joy. Such words he undoubtedly bandied about among his relatives by marriage and his wives, those two cancers of Rebecca. That's the his two wives, or Rebecca's, remember, Bain, who inflamed him more when he was already insane as the result of his fury. And this is the condition and picture of the house of Isaac, the very saintly patriarch. Is, it is in an exceedingly disturbed state on account of the plan of the Holy Spirit, which Rebecca carried out in order that the blessing might be transferred from the oldest son to the younger. For a very great disturbance had to follow, since all those grand hopes and plans of Esau had been brought to nothing. For he was already in possession of the priesthood and the rule and could not fear his downfall or expulsion. He didn't even have capacity to be afraid of losing this. It's not even a picture, you know. This is not two, like, it's not two 13-year-old boys. They're 77 years old. And he, and and for years now, for for. 40 years for 37 years, 40 years, Esau has basically been the king and ruling in the home. This is an outstanding example of the divine punishment because of that exceedingly proud prince and lord suddenly falls, so that in almost one moment, he who shortly before had promised himself an eternal rule is brought to the rope. This we should carefully set before our eyes, for the perversity of human nature is such that while we are sinning, we are smug. But when we feel God's wrath and punishment, we're wretched and desperate. Just as in the house of Esau, there was a very great lamentation and wailing. His wives, his children, the whole household wept aloud. He himself is driven to despair and madness because the wrath of God is something serious and horrible. For Esau is inflamed to such an extent that he wants to kill his parents and to destroy the church. Kill his parents, that means, you know, we're talking about the murder of Jacob, which would result in his parents dying too. And he's going to be Cain, and Jacob's going to be Abel. So we got the picture. It's amazing, actually. Uh, I don't know how different this is from your Sunday school picture, but from mine, you know, I, I certainly don't, I certainly did not picture in my imagination, Jacob and Esau is 77 years old. I certainly did not pick up on that, that conflict in the house between Esau's two wives and Rebecca. Uh, the idea that Esau is really ruling like a king here 
also I just didn't, I didn't see. This all seems very small in my imagination. Like they're just living in a little tent and Esau's going out hunting. And so the regality of it, the office of it, the the scope of it was Luther's helping me expand that. I'd love to hear how it's different for you too. How are we doing on time? 46. Um let's let's do one more verse. I don't think we'll get to the end of the commentary here, but let's look at verse 42. The words of Esau. Um, her older son were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. Some comfort. Hmm? That's the comfort of a terrified conscience. Comfort and vengeance. Comfort in getting even, what we call justice. And we want to remember that the two things that are driving this are, number one, the prophecy, the older will serve the younger, and number two, the selling of the birthright, which are which match up with one another, so that it it had to be by the Lord's arrangement and by Esau's sin that Esau would serve Jacob. But Esau is avoiding both of those, avoiding both the promise, the word of God, and also avoiding the consequence of his own sin. So we'll continue the story. We're making some progress here, but I mean, this is more a narrative than less study. So this is kind of nice. Esau did not conceal his threat, but while his children and wives wept and his relatives by marriage raged in anger and indignation, you got to think that Esau also had, he had fathers and mothers-in-laws, two sets of them, and grandparents and brothers-in-laws and cousins and all this. They were also expecting this great blessing from that Esau would receive. And so they're all, what? He said publicly, never mind. The joy of Jacob and my parents will not last long. I shall bring it about that they too will grieve and lament with us. <laughs> when someone of the servants who was more upright and faithful than the rest heard these words, he ran directly to Rebecca and reported them to her. And she herself could not have thought anything else than that he would be greatly disturbed and that he had very just reason for being angry since he had lived all his 77 years in the sure hope of possessing the blessing. And his father had intended it for him with the greatest zeal and kindness. All this is now lost. So the servant runs to Rebecca and she says, figured. Indeed, it also occurred to Rebecca that she was the source and cause of all these evils of that horrible confusion, though actually she was not. So Rebecca had to wrestle with this, what have I done kind of thing? What, what, what trouble have I caused? Am I going to, is my plot going to result in Jacob's death and my death and everything else? Ooh. She was the source and cause. She was not. What is the cause of this? Uh, Esau's sin, one, or really that's the second cause, and chiefly God's prophecy. That's number one. So what's been the cause of all of this is God's promise, the older will serve the younger, and Esau's sin, selling the birthright. Therefore, Esau brought this evil upon himself through his own fault, for he offended and despised God, regarded the glory and honor of the primogenitor of little value, sold it at a very cheap price, namely the red pottage, so forth, so forth. Observe then how much evil originated from this one sin. For beside the divine prophecy, Esau's sin is the cause of all this confusion. 
And with these two facts, Rebecca comforted, comforted herself in the first place with the divine prophecy, the older will serve the younger. In the second place, with the sin of Esau, who begins to rage and not repent after he too has come to know and feel the wrath of God, yet to sin and to feel the punishment and not to acknowledge that it is being inflicted by God's just judgment, but only to be indignant and angry about the good thing that was lost. This is not repentance. It's rage against God. See the last three lessons about this. In like manner, we today, when we're afflicted by the war with the Turk, ah, so Luther's going to make some applications. So the false repentance, so to, to sin, okay, there's the first thing, to feel the punishment, but to not acknowledge that it is being inflicted by God's just judgment is only to be indignant and angry, it not to be repentant. So, um, okay, so so here's the, uh, let me draw a picture here. Uh, I need a blackboard. Dun, dun, dun. Let's do like this. So here we feel the punishment. So uh, let's just say we feel the the suffering. And, uh, and, 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 but we don't, um, what we don't get is the cause from the, of the suffering, which is sin. And we don't, and we don't even get the cause underneath that, which is God's wrath. Or maybe God's wrath in the picture belongs belongs in here. So sin, God's wrath, suffering. All if we're just here in the feeling of the suffering, then that's not repentance, that's indignation and anger. Repentance comes when we recognize that it's God's wrath over our sin. If we just have indignation, then we're angry with God. But if we are repentant, then we look to God for help, that we recognize that only he can take away our sin. So I've talked a little bit about the difference between a, um, a troubled conscience um, and a terrified conscience. And, and and this has got to be where I think uh, where the difference is is that uh, is that terror comes only here. Trouble comes maybe I feel distressed or maybe I know I've done something wrong. I have a troubled conscience, but a terrified conscience knows that I've deserved God's wrath. But I think some of the most important words we're taught in the liturgy are that we've deserved God's temporal and eternal punishment, that we've deserved that. And we confess it. That's terror. Uh, terror is what David prays in Psalm 51. When he says, against you and you only have I sinned. So that terror is what recognizes that the, the chief trouble is that we've sinned against God. Okay. Uh, Esau doesn't have it. So Luther's going to make that application. Today, when we're afflicted by war with a Turk or by the plague or by famine and harassed in other ways by the devil, 
all complain about the greatness of the misfortunes. But you would hear no one say, we've sinned, we've done evil. Lord God, have mercy on us. Be mindful of thy mercy, which is of old. We do not turn to God who punishes us. Thus Isaiah 9 has the same complaint. The Lord, uh, the people did not turn to him who smote them, nor seek the Lord of hosts. So what are we supposed to do when we get affliction is repent and turn to the Lord. That's a, you know, that's a, this is a, the lesson that I suppose COVID-19 taught us is we get this affliction of this plague. And instead of turning to the Lord in repentance, we turn to, well, you turn to your God. So, so wherever you turn, that's what, that shows you what your God is. If it's science or medicine or um, alternative media or whatever, instead of turning to the Lord in repentance. All right, that's probably a good enough spot uh, to stop there. So let's um, let me let me save that here, and then we'll uh, say a closing prayer, and then I'll turn off all of the constraints, and we will um, and we'll chat with each other, see what questions are hanging around. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you um, overthrew the pride of Esau uh, and gave your promise and rule to Jacob. We thank you that you shepherded the prophecy of the gospel all the way through to the birth and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you've brought that promise also all the way to us. We pray that we would abide by that promise, that you would give us the comfort and wisdom of, of your word, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us also to repent and to delight in your kindness and mercy. For we ask this all through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right. Now I want to know from you.